Hi, welcome to the Mama Advocate Podcast. This is a safe place for adoptive and special needs mamas to feel less alone and find community amidst their unconventional journeys. Here, you're going to find authentic conversations for me and my guests who are parenting fully in the weeds with you. Our goal is to empower and encourage you to be the best mama you can be as you advocate for your people. Guys, I'm so excited to have Nate here with us today. He is an expert on so many levels, and he's like my newfound hero. Now, this might be a little overboard. I feel like I've told him this 80 times now, <laughs> um, but <laughs> he is amazing. So Nate, can you kind of explain what you do and why you are so amazing? Okay. Um, well, I can tell you what I do. I What I do is I'm a behavior consultant, and... Um, that is my way of um, using the systems that we have here in Oregon where I live um, to work with people who have developmental disabilities, specifically with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Um, and when I say, you know, being a behavior consultant is my way, um, a lot of what I talk about is how behaviors actually aren't that important. <laughs> um, the emphasis on observing behaviors and tracking behaviors and um, you know, kind of focusing on the behaviors as something to be dealt with is actually the opposite of where you wanna go. And I'm saying this as somebody who you know, has spent time doing typical behavior assessment. Um, and so what I, I guess what I do in my day-to-day -day is I work with families, I write um, plans to kind of help them understand all of the complicated factors that influence a challenging behavior. Um, and then I write um, a lot of plans which give a bunch of, of strategies and an overall framework for how we're gonna move forward with this particular kid. Um, I also make a few videos online, <laughs> you know, I'm somebody who uh, struggles to get all as many videos as I, as I was as I would like to make out, um, but some people have found those helpful, um, and I also do occasional workshops and trainings. I love that your videos have blessed me tremendously in helping understand my little people and all of their lovely behaviors that make me want to pull my hair out. And so right. I feel like I love what you talk about of just kind of figuring out what they need and focusing big picture and explaining how their brains work. So that way we can adapt to it. And I think so often I wait, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think about like, I'm so angry. Why can't they just, and then, it, but I feel like it's more like, okay, you are the adult. You can just, let's figure this out. Right. Um, well, I, I mean, what you said before, you know, it is, it is so important to know what is going on in terms of the brain. And with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, which is what I specialize in, we're not just looking at that disability, though that disability has a lot to tell us about how does this person, even when they're doing well, process verbal language? How do they process information in general? Many other skills, um, as well as things like trauma. You know, that's just going to be something that is common. Um, and there are very specific ways that especially early and ongoing stress or trauma um, influence the brain. The, it, it changes the brain. And what we see at the end of all of this, um, at the end of a lot of dysregulation is a challenging behavior. So um, it, it takes a lot of learning, <laughs> but I mean, it's okay. It takes time. Um, and, and another thing I think that's important for parents to understand is that this is not a quick process. These are changes that we are making now to set this kid up for the 
a better place in the future as their brain keeps developing um, and as things start clicking together. Yeah. How do, how do you suppose the best way to get those things to click together is? Well, there, there's nothing that, so, so you want to put a kid in a place where they are most likely to learn which is why we have to peel back a lot of layers. So that's where, you know, we might first look at their disability. And kids learn often kind of in everyday interactions, but only if they have the skills to pick up on all the cues and all the information or all the words. And unfortunately, a lot of these situations that we are, as the adults are putting kids in are verbal, which verbal is the least effective way to work with somebody who has an FASD. You gotta slow things down. You gotta visualize, you gotta practice. You gotta try a lot of other things um, to even ensure that they might pick up on something. And even then, even if, if, even if we have a good setup, this is not always like our problem or, or, or the adults aren't doing everything. There are some bad days, maybe. Maybe there's a mental health issue going on. Maybe there's a sensory issue going on. So having a bunch of sensory supports kind of as we continue to explore, ready to go and always ready. Um, we know that trauma is an issue. Um, and so a lot of kids, if they don't feel safe in their unconscious brain, they will not learn. Neuroscience teaches us this. And yet we are constantly putting kids who are feeling this lack of safety in situations where then we expect them to learn and then you know respond with disappointment or even punish them when they don't learn, uh, which isn't fair. Yeah. Yeah. I am curious if this is your, I love your like stop and give them a minute before they answer. Cause oh, often yeah. I'm like, come on, tell me what'd you do? What happened? Mm. Tell me the skip, whatever it is. And he just stares at me. Right. right. But <laughs> and now that I've like added a pause in there to whatever question I'm asking, it's amazing that he'll actually answer me with a, a truthful response. And like, I'll tell him, I said, I don't want to know just yet. Give, let's give it a minute and then come back around and that's been amazing. Like that works amazingly at our house. Can you, does that work across the board with developmentally delayed kiddos or is that just something specific to FASD? No, that's an across the board strategy, even for neurotypical kiddos, because the idea is that time to think is universally good. <laughs> Whether I'm having a moment where I'm dysregulated or where I need to think about something. Um, and so, you know, the, the kind of this, this framework of strategy that you're discussing here, this giving time to think, um, that comes from, you know, working with kids of all different developmental disabilities and just realizing that not only for the kids, but even for us adults, you know, time to think is good. Or if you see your kid getting oppositional and they say something, instead of immediately responding, just being quiet, buying yourself some milliseconds to think about the best way to approach this, which is not going to be power struggle, punishment, glaring, anything that makes them feel unsafe for the type of kids that we're talking about today. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. Did I answer that question? <laughs> you did. And I'm like, I'm, I'm hearing you say that. And I, I feel like probably a lot of these parents know those things. And at the same time, I just want to acknowledge the feeling of those are the exact three things I want to do. I want a power struggle. I want to glare them down and I want to argue my heart out, which is ridiculous. Like I know I have that knowledge, but everything in my human being. So I just wanted to address. That, that's, an, that, that's how we impulsively respond in a lot of these situations. And so then we can use that feeling that almost inability to stop ourselves from talking to our kids or responding to that 
that is an impulse that they might struggle with. If, you know, maybe you have a kiddo who lies or appears to lie or steals, right? That's because in a, a lot of the, not all situations, but a lot of the situations, their brain senses a reward and their body is moving before they have fully processed. It's not a scam. It's what we know about how these cognitive skills slip together, especially when there's a cognitive um, difficulty or delay. Um, so yeah. But it's and the things like, you know, the first several strategies, you know, giving a kid time to think using visuals, those things seem easy. And it's easy for us to say, yeah, I've done all of that. But really, no. And that's what I focus on is I'm focusing on the day to day moments, you know, that how am I interacting with my kid right now? And what I am demanding of you as a parent is tough, because like you said, every fiber of your being in these moments wants to do something else. So for you to, in a moment where you are dysregulated, do the thinking or the reminders or the coping skills that you need to respond in a different way, that's taxing on the brain, but it does get easier. Um, you know, you just have to practice at it. I love that. Okay. Another thing that I'm like super excited to try with my kiddos is practicing thinking. Mm. we talked yesterday for a hot minute and that was like, like I don't know why that's never crossed my mind we've talked about practicing behaviors and like let's go back and redo that let's walk back in the door try it without slamming it and it's like practicing those behaviors but I mean this is so brilliant and so simple and wonderful all at the same time but just practicing like what they're going through can you kind of explain that a little bit yeah yeah so my my thought process is anything that can be practiced proactively and in a good space, not with kids who are rolling their eyes and annoyed. We're not talking about that. But anything that can be practiced should be practiced. Um, and, and remembering when we focus on behavior, so when we, when we try to practice with kids to not do a behavior, the, the question is, are you addressing the underlying issues, which are either difficulty thinking, maybe because of impulsivity, like we've been talking about, or because of something even deeper like dysregulation due to trauma. And oftentimes the answer is no. So we try all these things, even visuals or, or punishments. The question always needs to be, is this addressing the underlying issue? Um, and so what practicing does in various scenarios is what I call pre-processing. You're making as much of what is going to happen. So we're prepping them for something, right? Um, we are making as much as possible tangible. And just talking about it is always gonna be abstract. So when physical movement is a part of something, that's potentially an opportunity to practice. When something needs to be said, you know, maybe we're practicing our role playing, you know, how they can respond if a peer makes fun of them at school, something like that, role playing as a form of practicing. Um, and then with what we were talking about yesterday um, is kind of practicing I'm trying to even remember the context if it was about trying to address lying or something. Do you remember the overall? There's so many, there's so many things. Um, yeah. But to essentially with whatever you're practicing. Stealing. Oh we're yeah. Stealing. stealing. Okay. So, you know, there's a big impulsivity factor there. So if you practice and you put something out there, you know, to represent the thing being stolen, right. And you're, you're playing around at school and you're just kind of practicing. Don't take that right? You're at, you're, you're starting, you're doing good. Like, I'm glad that you're practicing. That's great. Um, but help the kiddo think about the thoughts that we want them to have, which are very, it's, it's, it's not an accurate really way of looking at it, but to as much as possible model, maybe the internal dialogue that we want them to have, like, oh, I want to take that. I need to stop and think, 
right? And really emphasizing the importance for kids and stopping and thinking, right? It's, it's usually a good idea um, for everybody. And so, um, yeah, we just kind of talked about extending when you can practice something through, you know, if, if they're ready for this kind of thing, not all kids are, but to kind of think about the thought processes that we are maybe assuming that they're having, but are probably not happening. Whatever we're assuming about our kids' behaviors, we really should question it. It's, it is usually unintuitive. And then the layers of complexity with disability and maybe trauma make it even more unintuitive. Um, yeah. Okay. So Practicing. another thing I'm, I'm remembering from yesterday that you said that was kind of also mind blowing to me was the safety piece. I have a kiddo that loves to escape the car while it's moving. And we even have the safety harness on where he's stuck in there, but he's still trying to open the door and he's throwing things and all, all of the things are happening. And I'm like, oh my gosh, the safety is the issue. But I'm thinking like safety, like, I don't want you to die. Please don't roll out of the room vehicle, right? But you kind of brought light of clearly he's acting up because he doesn't feel safe. So what do we need to do to kind of get in there? So when we're seeing these like really unsafe behaviors, I guess is my question. Here it is. Are you ready? When you're seeing these really unsafe behaviors and you need to respond quickly, what, like, how do you even approach that as a parent? Like, how do you stop and think and put in all these other things in play and, yeah. So, so you, the, the question of how do we respond must come second. So let's come back to how do we respond to, we'll call it unsafe vehicle behavior, okay. right? Because first we must ask, why is this happening? What is the, the dysregulation or the sensory issue or the cognitive expectation that is leading to this? So dysregulation could be because of my kid's trauma, you know, before we even got in the car, they, their brain and their unconscious brain is already feeling unsafe. And we really got to make sure that when we say kiddo is feeling safe, we're not talking about them consciously with their executive functioning, which is what I'm always referencing when I point to my forehead. We're talking about unconscious parts of the brain, right? So telling them you're safe is not going to do anything, right? For this kind of dysregulation. So um, we want to address any kind of underlying dysregulation, not in just in the car, but in general, which is a huge discussion. There might be a sensory issue specifically related to the car or maybe the transition into or out of the car. Maybe it's my, the noises that my siblings are making. Maybe it's the radio. Um, and then there's the cognitive element of it, which is um, I'm really bored because I'm just sitting here, right? Assuming, of course, that there's no supports in place. Um, And so by addressing those things, the idea is that you're proactively reducing this behavior in the car, right? In terms of how to respond, I I can't tell you 100%. You have to keep people safe, so that might mean pulling over, right? Until you can assess and and give yourself time to think, right? To how can I respond in a way that is going to re-regulate this person, soothe them, help them feel safe on an unconscious level and help us to move forward. It's probably going to mean um, taking some time. So if you are in a hurry as a parent, and this is what I know we all deal with, right? It's the everyday pressures, like you have things to do, right? And so to stop a moment is really hard during dysregulation, which is why I really wanna encourage people to stop these moments during normal everyday situations, right? And everyday learning when people are doing well. Um, but, but even then when, when things are struggling, we have to soothe and help the kiddo feel safe 
and then move forward. So trying not to engage in power struggle, using empathy if they're able to hear you, maybe not talking as much, maybe you're talking even though you're trying to be helpful is overwhelming them. So giving that time to think, not expecting any immediate dysregulation. It, it takes a while for people to recover sometimes, especially if we're in the kind of in the middle of an uncomfortable scenario like a car ride. So um, you're, you have knowledge of Karen Purvis. Yeah. who's absolutely wonderful and does a lot of trauma work and connecting while um, connecting while correcting. And she does, a, I saw a video one time where she does a great job of like, okay, do you need something to eat? Do you need something to drink? And kind of hitting on those core things. Do you have a list of things like that where, where when we're pausing to try to figure out what's going on with this kiddo and all you're getting is screaming or all you're getting is glares and you're trying to communicate with them questions to ask or things to kind of move forward in? Um, so that list is something that you should make dependent on okay. what we know is a trigger for the child. But we have to be careful because we have to read the situation. This might not be any, the solution here might not be that they need to hear me say the list out loud. It might just be that they are not ready to have any interaction until some regulation via time has occurred, right? But as we plan, and so the idea is to, yes, have this list, but have it be something that you are proactively working on with your child. So some part of them is expecting you to maybe reference it during the escalation. So it's not just something you're trying out for the first time there. And definitely things like, you know, do you want a drink of water? Do you need something to eat, those kinds of things. And, and if you know that your kiddo gets really hangry, let's just use that as an example, having those snacks proactively in the car, right? Asking them before they're dysregulated. And then really, so that's, that's you changing your systems and your way of doing it to try to use all this knowledge that we know might help with dysregulation, kind of, sort of, some of the time to see if putting it more proactively helps to lower overall dysregulation. I love that. Yeah. So if our child is shut down and um, need, you, you're like, I know that he just needs a minute. He's not going to talk to me at all right now. Like verbally communicating is not there. And ideally we'd be proactive and like hit all his, his needs. But I feel like, as you know, with FASD kids, it's like, you just never know sometimes. And we fly off the handle for no reason. There is a reason. Don't okay. hear me say that. It's okay. I know what you're saying. <laughs> but if, if he's like flying off the handle, and I'm like, okay, you just need a minute. How do you suggest that happening? And is this just maybe per kid basis that they should sit down with you or like sit in the room with you or go to the room or have a designated spot that we practice going so, over? Yeah, first you said shut down, but then you said flying off the handle. And those things are opposite to me and my wow. knowledge. So which one are we? do we want to address? Like a shutdown state or a What's flying a off shutdown the state? I feel like we often get those intertwined at our house, which may okay. be more... Which makes sense. Some we may need more coaching, you know? Right, and th this is a big part of polyvagal theory and uh, Mona Delahook's book, Beyond Behaviors, There's the shutting down piece, which is very helpful and knowledgeable. Um, so if we're in a shutdown state, which is a non-responsive state, not anger, not glares typically, but some kids, especially those with maybe medical trauma early on, um, or people who've been through significant abuse and neglect, they might, in addition to having escalation issues, might shut down in this way. So with those, 
whether we're talking about shutting down or escalation, ideally the first step is that we follow the plan. And that plan is referencing the thing that we've been working on, practicing, collaborating about, expanding, tweaking when needed, that long-term plan that we should be having with them. Because then all you have to do is follow it. Maybe that plan that you've made with them involves you saying something. Maybe it involves you being quiet. Maybe you point to something that represents, this means we're following the plan, right? Um, when a kiddo is in a shutdown state specifically, you just, you wanna consider is talking contributing to this, even conversations that have nothing to do with it. If they have a disability or they have sensory issues, yes, like we probably should stop talking. So staying with them quietly and kind of just, you know, maybe slowly offering, you know, comfort or something to eat um, or an activity or a sensory input connection, that would generally be kind of the direction you would want to start exploring as part of your plan for when this happens. Um, and, and I say be careful about the talking because sometimes even trying to be comforting, if the person is an already in an overstimulated and dysregulated place, the words are just too much, right? Um, and so you might be making things temporarily worse and not better in that scenario. Um, in terms of working with our children, you know, so though and only not every child can work on these proactive plans that I've been talking about. You have to be at a certain place developmentally and connection wise to do that, which is a whole other discussion. Um, but that's where you would be brainstorming. Do you want, you know, how about next time this happens, I put on some music that you like, right? Um, what if we, do we need to like have some essential oils and like something sensory based to kind of help them soothe and come back into a place of safety? So that, that would be kind of my initial starting place for the shutting down category. Do we want to talk about flying off the handle too? <laughs> yes. And I've never, I never really recognized the difference because I guess I have one that shuts down, but it's not that like, I know how to address that. So I've never really thought about that. But the other one that shuts down is like glaring and like, but really that's falls under the different categories, what you're saying. Well, I mean, there, there could be elements of both. This is a neurological pathway that is part of polyvagal theory. So I think there's definitely for a time, not every kid shuts down in, in a neurological sense that we're talking about through polyvagal theory. Um, and then some do both, right? Some kids maybe only shut down, but usually we're gonna see also some escalative behaviors, at least with my clients. Um, and so, it's 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 not that it's necessarily in one or the other, but we're trying to understand what is going to work for this kid because there they are different responses in the brain, and so the the biggest like we'll just we'll just talk about the example. So when somebody's in a more escalative state in a fight or flight versus shut down, um, we would not necessarily want to sit next to them, right? We would not necessarily uh, want to talk to them at all for a while, but we have to be careful, um, especially when somebody has been through uh, trauma to also not allow us to disconnect if that's gonna be a problem for them, which is why these proactive plans are so important because maybe it's, it's technically best for them to take some space quietly, you know, until they can get cognitively to the place where we can reconnect and move forward and collaborate. Um, 
but it, it can be very hard to get them to do it in the moment, right? Or for us to even remember, and we just start to engage and we and we try to reason with them or they say something and we respond to it. But in dysregulation, what somebody is saying, you don't necessarily wanna go down that rabbit trail. So if they say, I hate you, responding to that and saying, well, why do you hate me? Or you shouldn't hate me or anything at all to the I hate you. No, because the I hate you is the behavior, even though it's speech, it's a behavior that's the sign of this underlying dysregulation. So the, the, in terms of how we respond in these uh, escalative scenarios, they are much more, there's a lot more variable in terms of, do we want to be close to this person or not? Some kids we do wanna be close to because they are needing the connection and it's not dangerous, you know, and it's not gonna make things worse. But if you were to sit next to somebody and they were to start increasing their escalation, that's the wrong thing to do right now until we either put it in the plan with them and practice it or until they get to, to uh, regulating enough to receive that kind of stuff. Um, so sometimes distractions can be helpful. It, it, there's there's a lot of things going on with why somebody might be escalative. It can be it could have to do with a trigger that's in the moment, and it can and often does have to do with a lot more than just the trigger. It has to do with all of their inabilities and struggles and traumas over the years, kind of coming out through this trigger. Right, which is, it seems like, why are you upset about something so small? And then we have a two hour meltdown about it. Well, it's because it's not about the something small. There is a, um, a very uncomfortable dysregulation going on that we're often just pointing the finger back at these kids and saying, just knock it off, just be regulated. But their brains haven't been wired to just regulate. That's not how that works for them. Um, so sensory things like we talked about with shutting down, those might as part of a proactive plan be used, but the things you're typically wanting to avoid is using too much talking, especially during escalation. Um, and uh, you also want to avoid responding to opposition, opposition. So maybe you do have a plan that you've been trying to kind of get together and you, you prompt them or you remind them about it and they immediately refuse. That's okay, we're going to expect immediate refusal, which means we don't wanna to respond to that. And that's not the same as ignoring. When I say don't respond to opposition or don't respond, it's literally being quiet so you can think and so that they can think um, as much as possible. And then for some kids, the idea, you know, if, if there's opposition happening, especially toward the plan to calm down, is that you would give them some time to think of it. Of it. You're not engaging in power struggle. Um, you're still remaining there with your presence. You're focused on keeping yourself regulated and your outward appearance regulated. And eventually things click together in terms of regulation for them to where they do start to follow the plan. And even though, you know, especially when we start off, you know, this will not play out nearly as neatly as we're discussing, right? There will be uh, <laughs> obstacles to getting this going. And that's, that's not the point. The point is not for this to work right away. The point is for you to practice collaborating about these things with your kid in a way that actually works for their brain. And that when it doesn't work, we just come back to the table and we say, okay, should we try it again the exact same way? Should we tweak something? And you start to work with them in a developmentally appropriate way um, to start to make some progress on how they respond in these moments. But none of this is going to work, just to reiterate, if there is constant underlying dysregulation that is not being addressed, or if the kiddo's unconscious brain doesn't feel safe. None of my strategies will. If that's the dysregulation that's going on, we got to put a lot of time and effort and adjusted expectations 
into addressing those things. Yeah. Would you recommend bringing in like our OT and our teacher that aid at school that knows them really well, that has some good strategies just to kind of help come up with the plan? So um, that would be wonderful because in, in a lot of senses, you know, I don't know if this is necessarily true with you, but some parents find that if a teacher or a professional were to talk about their kid, the kid would be a lot more into making the plan versus them as a parent doing it They're, you know, and that's because that's the reason for that is it completely expected and also very complicated. So what you're talking about is by having another professional discuss or even make this plan with him, I call that bridging a plan. So somebody else makes it and maybe even practices it and ideally then brings you in to practice with you and then we try to do it at home. So for some kids, that would be potentially really good. I always want an occupational therapist in the picture for these kids for the sensory stuff. Um, not necessarily always, but continuing to explore um, sensory preferences and what in the environment maybe triggers sensory dysregulation um, can give us a lot of information. And um, when we have kids who've been through a lot of trauma or dysregulation, I really believe the sensory is the biggest way forward in terms of them learning internally the skills to identify what is this, what is happening, what is this emotion, but actually might be more of a body sensation and what can I do? And that's where the OT will come in with, here are some sensory strategies. And, and it's not gonna be quick, but it's kind of a slowly understanding of them understanding what's going on in here as they continue to develop. I love that. I feel like I have a million more questions, but I feel like I don't want to overwhelm people either, you know? Yeah, there's a lot. There's <laughs> a lot. Can we just reiterate one more time? Because I know that so many mamas struggle with mom guilt that they're not doing something right. And that's why these behaviors are happening or they, they just feel at a loss and they're blaming all the behavior on themselves, which no. is not the case. And so no. I just, I would love to hear from your mouth just yeah. freedom for these women that are struggling with that. Even with strategies, like giving them time to think, not responding to opposition, we have to expect dysregulation, right? What, what society wants and what we feel pressured to achieve is our kid maybe has some dysregulation, but we don't even see it, right? Because they're regulating it, that we don't see it through behavior. That is an unreasonable expectation for these kids. So to, the, what is a success is when they are dysregulated, that you respond in a way that doesn't make things worse by connecting, that you soothe, and that you get to a point where you can move forward and it'd be okay with adjusting expectations, in my opinion. That's totally fine. Um, versus what so often happens is they get dysregulated, we engage in a way that makes things worse, or that takes us on an irrelevant rabbit trail because we're only focused on the behaviors. Um, and so I, when I say expect the dysregulation, what I mean is you can't do anything about it. It's not, you can't re remove all triggers. You can't, a lot of triggers are internal and about the cognitive demands of just regulating a situation. And of course, we're going to do everything we can to change the environment and make it easier, but that's still going to be something that they have to learn. So the dysregulation is not a failure. That is the beginning of our response. And by that, we can determine, you know, I don't not say failure, but like, did we respond in the right way? And if we did, let's keep doing that. And let's start making sure all the other systems involved with this kid do similar things if they're escalating in other places and really getting a, a, a big framework of support down. 
Um, 90% of the issue, in my opinion, has nothing to do with the kid or the parent. It has to do with the expectations of society and the systems. So you will be doing things at home that you might see work and then your kid might struggle at school and you're, you're giving the information. People don't believe parents, right? That's, you know, it's one thing that really, I think, has made people like me as a professional is when parents are telling me something, I believe it because my parents are foster parents. Nothing, these behaviors that I hear about are a Tuesday for me, right? But there's so much shame around it and stigma around it um, that, you know, everybody feels like they're alone, but this is so incredibly common with a very common disability. Um, and so it's definitely not our fault. That doesn't mean that there aren't things that we can do to improve. There aren't, I mean, that doesn't mean that we don't do things sometimes that do make things worse. But again, to do something different demands a lot of you. And it's going to be inconsistent in your ability to do that, just like your kids' ability to think in the way that we want them to will be inconsistent and imperfect, and sometimes include some dysregulation and anger. And so the question is, are we continuing to develop proactive strategies to maintain my personal regulation? And am I continuing to explore? What, you know, how can I make life less stressful or more cognitively supported for my kid? Yeah, guilt is a big thing. I mean, and it's, there, there is no reason to feel guilty, in my opinion. Like, a lot of people have kids with challenging behaviors, and it's because of a history of dysregulation that's often because of the systems that are supposed to be helping us as a family. So, yeah. You're amazing. I'm so grateful. Thank you for meeting with us today. Yeah, you're welcome.